Hey everybody, what's up? This is Joseph Coyne and welcome to the ACA Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the ACA Podcast. I'm your host Joseph Coyne and this is episode 63. Now, along with all the amazing guests we have on the podcast, this episode is brought to you by Valve Performance. They make the Nord board, the Force Frame, Human Track, and Force Decks. Force Decks, look, I, I say this every time, but I'm a massive fan of They're great for jumps, other isometric tests like your mid-thigh pulls, your isometric squats, your athletic shoulder test, the ash test. Um, the Force Frame is actually another Valve product I'm really seeing a lot of value in lately with the ability to isometrically test a number of different joints and also being able to set up isometric training programs on. Uh, just personally, I actually recently ruptured a bicep and have been doing isometric elbow flexion work on it to bring the injured side back up. But anyway, look, all of Valve products super user-friendly. They give you data you can run with immediately without wasting time as a coach. If you're in the market, please reach out to them, valveperformance.com, hit them up on social media or shoot them an email, info at valveperformance.com. Now, guests for episode number 63 are Christy Sheridan and Narelle Saib. Christy is an s coach and exercise physiologist. She's worked with a variety of state, national and international athletes in soccer, rugby union, hockey, horse racing, swimming, athletics and netball. She's also presented at multiple conferences and for a number of professional organisations. She's currently employed as a lecturer at the University of Newcastle where she also does some consultancy work. Meanwhile, Narelle is another SNC coach. Of course, she's very experienced, over 20 years experience in elite athletic development. She was on the UK SCA Board of Directors in its inaugural year and is currently the chair of the ACA Women's Advisory Committee. She's been awarded the Bruce Walsh Memorial Award, which is like the biggest SNC uh, coach award in Australia for services to the Australian strength and conditioning industry. It's helped develop uh, numerous national and international athletes at both the Australian and English Institute of Sports. I'm running out of breath here, but she's got heaps of experience, not just with those, but also in tennis as well. And she's previously held the roles of National Strength and Conditioning Manager at Tennis Australia and also the Lawn Tennis Association. So superstar of the strength and conditioning industry. Now, in this interview, we chat about where to start in SNC, what opportunities are worthwhile. For example, what an internship program should look like for you and your particular situation. We talk about career pathways and also what career longevity might look like. Alongside this, we touch on some of the lessons learned along Christy and Narelle's different paths in strength and conditioning. And anyway, to crack of an episode, really highlights what SNC coaches need to be aware of when navigating the industry. So let's get the show started. Okay, ACA podcast. We're on the line with Christy Sheridan and Narelle Saib. Uh, thank you, ladies, for being on the podcast. Wonderful to have you on. Thanks Hello, for having thank me. you for having us. Awesome, awesome. Uh, look, so I've got to ask you both, how and why did it actually begin this journey into SNC, uh, the wonderful world that it is? How, how did it even come about for both of you? you and Christy, first, Christy lead off, talk? lead off, Christy. We'll, we'll let you lead off just so there's some order here. All right. So I actually started as an accredited exercise physiologist working in um, rehab um, always had a big passion for sport and I'm, um, sort of just followed the career path down, uh, helping people obviously recover from injury and, and chronic disease and illnesses. Um, but, yeah, there was just this still strong pull to, you know, to work with athletes and be around the sports environment. So, yeah, after a few years of doing EP, I started to look into how to become a strength and conditioning coach. Um, I was playing a bit of rugby at the time and 
fortunately had a really good contact that put me um, put me in touch with Craig Twentyman from the Rugby Sevens um, team. And basically it all kicked off from there after watching what they do and seeing how they perform. It was kind of just, you know, that, that fire in your belly type moment where it was like that's exactly what I want to do. So, yeah, from there it was kind of just working the way up, um, looking at different job opportunities just locally and then also uh, internationally. And, um, yeah, that's pretty much where it all started for me. Yeah, cool, cool. Little known fact, I was actually, uh, I went to the same, did the same university course as Craig Twentyman um, and I was really good friends with his younger brother. Well, hung out with, kicked around yeah, right. a fair bit, yeah, um, Grant. But, uh, yeah, he does wonderful stuff, wonderful stuff with Rugby Australia and now he's at the Warriors. Um, Narelle, uh, t- tell us about your background. I know there's been, like, netball, there's been tennis, there's been England Institute of Sport, AIS. What, what, what's, uh, how did you get into it and what's that journey like? Do you know what? It was funny, Christy, talking about EPs and it made me feel really old because EPs didn't even exist when I first started. So that's <laughs> But um, I always wanted to be a physio and um, my idea of the physio was working in the sports environment and, you know, helping rehabilitate athletes to get them back on the park and fulfil their potential um, in that respect. And I missed out on the marks um, very narrowly uh, at the end of year 12 and I decided I'd um, do a phys ed degree and and that perhaps I would cross over. But I got into the that degree and then I did another sports coaching and admin degree at the end of that. And um, I was really fortunate that I applied in my last lot of exams for that sports coaching and admin degree. I applied for a scholarship position with Julian Jones in the AIS strength and conditioning department. And, um, you know, fortunately I, I got that one and I really got to spend some time with some wonderful people. So at the time there they had Julian Jones, Stu Cormack, Dee Jennings, through my time at the AIS, Adam Beard, Dean Benton, some great people. Um, and I, I spent probably ooh, 98 to 2004 there and then I decided to spread my wings and go to the EIS and and just maybe delve into some different sports so uh, I went over to Loughborough and worked with Adam Beard um, at the EIS and looked after hockey and triathlon and sprint and slalom canoe and didn't have a great experience, I've got to say, at the EIS. Um, so I did some consultancy for a period of time and, and then got into tennis with the Lawn Tennis Association and uh, did a little bit there before I came back, um, won Australian Open actually, and I ran into um, a, a really great friend and former colleague, somebody who'd gone through the scholarship program with me who was working from Tennis Australia and he offered me the same job back in Australia that I, I had in the, the UK as National Strength and Conditioning Manager. So um, I took about 38 seconds for me to say yes and start backing up my house to come back and um, pretty much the last or 10 years, or three years have been up with netball, but not necessarily in a strength and conditioning capacity, um, more as a high performance manager, but have uh, private tennis clients um, that I'm training at the same time. But the, the 10 years before that was just all in tennis, um, which is interesting, a very interesting sport, that's for sure. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. It's uh... Definitely. It's a cool sport. I can imagine it's a cool sport to train, but there's also a lot of uh, idiosyncrasies with uh, with tennis players and their entourages and, and how things go about and, and so on. Um, 
Absolutely. And I think I was one of the, the people initially where you look at it and you kind of think, oh, no one's doing it well, the strength and conditioning, without knowing the context in which strength and conditioning has to be delivered. You know, they play 38 weeks of the year. Sometimes they'll play over 10 matches in a week and they'll need to go to the other side of the world in two days and play on a different court surface, you know. So even the sport doesn't stay the same. The characteristics of tennis on the grass are very different to on the clay. Mm. So um, there's a reason that it's crazy. But um, And I think a lot of strength and conditioning coaches sort of struggle with that a little bit too because we're all control freaks, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's so much in the tennis world that you can't control. So you really have to let go and focus on those things that you can. Um, so that was probably the greatest learning for me um, is to not beat my head up against a wall of things that are never going to change. You know, what have I got opportunity to work on and develop and throw yourself into that? Yeah, sure. So this actually brings me to the sort of next thing I wanted to ask you girls is obviously you both had uh, varied experience and Christy, you, you've been in India and also uh, working at netball in Adelaide, South Australia. And looking back, you, Narelle, you mentioned... Hey, what I learned from tennis was you've got to let go a little bit. What would be one thing you've learned from each spot you've been at uh, along the journey? And so, Christy, if you want to start us off here. Yeah, sure. I think the biggest thing that I learned out of, um, I guess, my first exposure to S&C in a, in a high-performance setting would have been, like, the culture and how important that is. Um, I'm not sure if you know about the facilities down at... Um, at Narrabeen but they weren't you know they weren't anything you know lovely or nice it's kind of just your you know steel frame sort of gym equipment and um these girls just had the ability to get on with it and just make the most of what they did have access to um obviously went on to win a gold medal a couple of years later so something like that I think is really really important just to have that good culture and not worry about you know don't sweat the small stuff type of thing um my next role was with the Junior Gold Cup program. So working with youth athletes, you can't apply the same kind of um, strategies that you would with elite female athletes. So learning how to, I guess, be adaptable to your audience um, was something that I really learned from working with the, the youth athletes there. Um, a small little stint over in Malaysia, which was an interesting one. Uh, I didn't actually get my hands on any athletes because there were some issues with contracting and Anyway, big lesson learned from that one was to make sure you read through your contracts and, uh, um, yeah, make sure that you're asking all of the questions before you you sign up for anything and relocate over to a foreign country. So that was big, big learnings from that. Um, next one, moving back into to Australia, I worked for a private performance facility and we worked mainly with um, youth development and, like, a Rookies to Reds program. So, um for me, there was a lot of mixed messages going on working with different coaches, um, you know, from high school coaching uh, all the way through to, you know, the Reds development program. And there were so many different things that these kids were being exposed to that they just had no idea what was being expected of them. So I guess my role there was mainly just to break down those messages so that they had the focus and they had something to, you know, attainable um, or something to achieve to. Uh, India, we faced a lot of different challenges over there. Um, I guess 
again, being resourceful. Use what you've got. Um, again, don't sweat the small stuff. You know, if you turn up one day expecting to be on the pitch but the senior men's hockey team are there, well, what can you do in that time period? You know, you've still got the athletes there. They're ready to go. They're warmed up. Um, it's not good enough just to say, oh, well, the pitch isn't available, so go back to your dorms. You know, you've got to think a little bit on the spot and make the most um, of that time. So we always had, you know, lesson plan B, lesson plan C uh, to sort of, you know, facilitate those times where you were just put on the spot and you had to kind of make the most of that time. Um, Racing Victoria was a very interesting one. So S&C was very, very new with this jockey program that we'd we'd started up. my biggest learning from that is just listen to what they want. You know, we've got all of these ideas that we've learnt from uni and from past experiences, but if the athletes and the coaches aren't buying into it, <laughs> there's no point trying to push it. Um, so just sit back and listen, you know, what is it that you want to achieve and then work out how to achieve that. Um, obviously try and educate a little bit on the way as well so that, you know, they can understand your point of view or what you're trying to get across. But at the end of the day, really just listen to what, you know, what is it that they want you to do? Um, Sunshine Coast Lightning, ask more questions was a big one that I, I got out of um, my time up there. It's, you know, you see people like Mark McKean and Narelle and you, you sort of think that they have all of the answers. But, um, yeah, one of the big things that Mark sort of taught me was just to ask more questions, question everything that he does, which was brilliant because you find out so much more or, the complexity behind what they do it just seems so simple you know numbers and sets and reps on a page but it's that underlying why um, things are done that I found really really exciting from from Mark um, everything has a purpose there's no no point just adding fluff into into any program it just point, um, causes pointless fatigue so for me um, you know everything has to have a reason as to why you're doing it some athletes will ask, why is this in here? And if you don't have a good reason, then you've lost them in a second. Um, and also don't be so rigid. You know, we've all got these lesson or session plans that that we like to take into things to make sure that we're nice and prepared. But, yeah, you can't always just be rigid with that. You have to be sensing what the athletes are up to, where they're at. Um, maybe it's not the, the right time to be doing such a hard session, so knowing when to back off and when to keep pushing forward and, um, the last point was enjoy what you do, um, have fun with it because at the end of the day, if you don't enjoy what you're doing, it's going to be a pretty hard uh, hard session to go through. Um, I guess my last one, the learnings from that is just to, to take more time to reflect. I think at times you get caught up in just being so busy trying to do your job that you're not actually looking at what's really important, thinking, you know, that you've just got to keep going along, but taking time to really sit back, evaluate your performance as a coach, how could you do things better and, and how could you do things differently? So, yeah, I think that they're probably my biggest learnings. Mm, classic, classic. Yeah, I can just imagine India and, uh, and you're, you're <laughs> so right about, uh, about the fun. Like I call it vitamin F and uh, yeah. the most essential vitamin we need to ingest on a daily basis. <laughs> so, uh, oh, definitely. So true, so true. Super interesting. Thank you, Christy. Uh, Narelle, Narelle, please... Uh, the, the sort of biggest things you've learned from, from each squad? Um, very early on, I learned a great lesson, I think, with basketball um, at the AIS. And um, I'd had a meeting with the coaching staff uh, prior to the scholarship athletes coming in and we worked out how many weeks and how many sessions we were likely to see the athletes. And they were junior athletes. So based on that, we sort of made a few blanket statements as if to, um, to say, 
okay, we have expectations that if we get that amount of training in, that everyone should reach a minimum standard on certain exercises of this, this and this. Um, and so we all um, committed to that plan. And at uh, the end of the season, one of the coaching staff came in and um, we'd finished our last testing um, of the year. And they said, um, you're a crap coach. Uh, only 60% of the athletes have attained the um, standards that, that you said that they would at the start. So this hasn't been very successful. And fortunately, what I'd done is from the information that we discussed at the start of the, the scholarship year and how much exposure I would have to the players, I actually had a wall chart and I would put a sticker on if the program missed sessions or if they were away, if they extended tours and all that kind of stuff. And it, as it turned out, there was approximately half the exposure that was agreed to at the start was what I had to work with the athletes. So it was great to be able to say, I appreciate you coming in and I'm sorry that you're disappointed in where your athletes are at, but you promised me this, you gave me half of it, yet 66% or so had achieved that standard. Actually, I'm kicking goals. The real question here is how important is physical development because at the start you were going to give me more exposure and you didn't. So for developmental athletes for next year's intake, do we stick with what we initially discussed or do we get tempted by extra tours and opportunities for competitive play? So it was a really uncomfortable discussion, but I was so pleased that I had documented all of those things to be able to rebut and not get on the attack, but at least to say, come on, what's important here? We've got to learn something from this because there are people that aren't happy. So that was a really big lesson. Um, for me. I also worked with the boxing program at the AIS and at the time they hadn't worked with any of the strength and conditioning staff. So could you imagine their delight when they get handed me a female strength and conditioning coach with not a hell of a lot of experience? And I think the most important thing that I learned with that one is to be humble, to show commitment and show that you care. So I said, listen, I'll keep out of your face completely, but if it would be okay to just sit at the side of your training sessions and observe and listen to the language that you use and things, and then over time you get that better relationship where you can ask questions and, you know, it might be an opportunity of an athlete getting injured that you finally get to show what you're capable of and assist the program and, um and that was a, a huge learning curve for me. And not, not to, to say that you know everything, but to say, you know what, I want to actually participate in training if it's not going to be disruptive because I want to know what it's like. Um, and that willingness to, to learn, I think um, it, it's, it's something that really helps build that relationship. Um, when I was at the... English Institute of Sport working with triathlon, they had a quite a big program and they had world champions and junior athletes as well. And the head coach was really keen to embrace strength and conditioning, but it was the first time that I'd worked heading up a program that was endurance-based. And it's quite eye-opening to see the volumes. And so their coach compared um, their V... Um, their 
uh, fitness, I guess, if you like, compared to track and field athletes or 10K runners. And he says, I'm not really happy with where we're at with VO2 um, and all this kind of stuff, so we need to do more running. And then I said, well, let's look at some things that may affect VO2. And what we discovered is that the guys didn't breathe correctly. They couldn't diaphragmatically breathe. So, of course, the triathlete and the triathlon coaches, they were keen to just do more volume. Whereas I said, well, let's look at it from a different perspective. How can we make improvements without necessarily adding more load? We actually did singing lessons with those guys. And at the start, they looked at me like I was some kind of freak. Um, But we did a 10-week block of singing lessons, which uses diaphragmatic breathing. And, of course, we ended the um, 10-week stint with a bit of a karaoke night and a bit of a party. And, and we made some improvements, but more than anything, you know, we looked at ways that we could get performance improvement that didn't add on because overuse injuries and the repetition is the number one problem in that sport. So using, I guess, creative thinking to try and solve um, a problem um, in that aspect was probably the first time I'd really delved into something a little bit different and you take a risk don't you because if it doesn't work you look like a bit of a goose um and I suppose with tennis um one of the things that you need to be with tennis is really flexible so unlike other sports where you know that game time is 7 p.m with tennis you might be third match on the matches start at 11. Well, you don't know if a match is going to go 45 minutes or three hours. So you could be playing at any time from 1 p.m. to 7 p.m. at night. So timing food. Also, depending on the level of tournament that you're participating at, you may or may not have any space to do your warm-up. It might be, you know, two by two metres on the side of the court or it might be a, a big gymnasium facility. So... Um, Obviously, you go there in the day and you try and work out what you're going to have available and in regards to space and resource, but the ability to think on your feet um, and be able to implement something that will get a return on the investment that the athlete will buy into, um, that was key, I think, in tennis. Mm. So so interesting, especially the... uh the uh, bit about the singing. When I was a kid, I actually did uh, speech and drama lessons for about five years. And uh, you might not know it now, just the way I talk. And my mum's probably uh, rolling over in her bed if she's sleeping at the moment, that sort of thing. But we did like intercostal diaphragmatic breathing was, was what it was called. And uh, and it, it just, that resonates so much in terms of like the VO2 max, te- max testing. That's uh, obviously it's the volume of oxygen going in, not not necessarily the speed you're running at and, and, uh, Obviously, there's a big correlation between those two, but how can you improve that? And breathing mechanics makes a lot of sense to me, a heck of a lot of sense to me. So super super interesting, Um, (laughs) Ralph. Now, we've talked about these spots. What would be the biggest change? What would be, like, this is when I started. This is what I really thought. This is what I was doing. What have I changed to now? What's been the biggest change since when you started to to what you're doing now? And I'll I'll start with you, uh, Christy. Um, I think as as I started out in SNC, um, you've got a lot of book knowledge and you, you're pretty keen to start implementing all of that, you know, the textbook stuff and, and, and I guess you're a little bit um, 
you know, blindfolded, I guess. You're sort of walking through this, this journey with your blinkers on knowing that this is where you're going and this is what you're doing and everything has its, you know, everything's mapped out. Um, whereas now I feel like that, that coaching and, um, um, yeah, being an SNC coach and working with athletes, it's quite fluid, you know. If you walk through um, any kind of an SNC program with your blinkers on, uh, you're going to miss out on those small little cues that, that are telling you that either you're not doing enough or you're doing too much or this isn't right for this person. Um, so that's the biggest thing for me, I think, is just being able to get to have a plan. Obviously, you've still got to have your plans there and, and that's very important, but just being more open to the idea that it's not, um, you know, it's not as strict as what I, I th- first thought it was. And, yeah, just being a little bit more open to acknowledging what the athletes are doing and how they're presenting on that particular day. Mm-hmm. So true, so true. You write a, If you write a really detailed, extensive program, you're uh, immediately, uh, if you've got to change it, there's, there's always, well, I just spent the last 10 hours writing this thing um, but I, and, and there's like a commitment to it. And I was actually... Peter Colhane, who's like the national lead for SNC in Australia, I had a call with him, a podcast with him just recently, talking about the exact same thing. And his approach really, really resembles that. He has sort of what he needs to get to, but then how he needs to get to might take different routes depending on how the athlete presents or how they walk in the door, what's happened in the previous session and so on. So it's such, I think it's a real hallmark of of not just good SNC coaches, but also when I've seen really good technical coaches, they operate in a similar, similar fashion, similar manner. So. That's great to hear. Uh, Narelle, uh, biggest change from uh, from start to finish or start to current, I should say. Yeah, I, I think um, initially when I first got into strength and conditioning, um, when you're given the reins to a program, um, I wanted to put really funky, sexy exercises in there that people would be blown away by. So more than anything, it was probably on my insecurities um, and that I wanted the feedback of this is amazing, I've never seen this before and I change programs frequently and all that sort of thing. And, you know, it was a few years, I'm a slow learner, it was a few years later where I reflected on it. I said, you know, I justified it previously by saying I thought the athletes were getting bored of those exercises, but it wasn't, it was about me and that shouldn't be why I'm in this business I'm there for them and I have had a really big shift back to the meat and potatoes um, and getting the basics done really well because I don't think um, with so much technology and evaluation and all this kind of stuff we're always looking for funky stuff but I think we just need to do the basics really well and then you can look at the funky stuff so one step at a time. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, no, I, I definitely I, I agree with that hundred percent. But the, the next sort of question I want to ask you, say I'm I'm a I'm a I'm gonna say Christy Narell, I wanna come and spend a week with you, I wanna see what you do. Um, I'll get your coffees, I'll I'll do what I'll clean the floor, whatever. Can I just watch you for a week? What if I was gonna be there for a week with you guys, what would I take away from it? What would it be like two or three things, like technical things that'll be well, they do this really well. Maybe it's blood flow restriction or maybe it's force plates or maybe it's just the meat and potatoes like you said, Narelle. What would be those those sort of things that uh, that I'd, as a fly on a wall, I'd be like, yeah, that's really cool what you're doing there, Christy. That's amazing what you're doing there, Narelle. I think for me it, it's, it's knowing when to coach and when not to coach and that was feedback um, I recently had from a student that was 
uh, on placement with me and I think you, you taught at uni that if something doesn't look right, you go in and correct it, you fix it, you make it better, right? But sometimes, you know, our perception of what right is isn't actually right for that person. So um, I've developed a bit more of a philosophy about letting people work out strategies to, to make the shape that's most appropriate for them, um, which is something that I had never been exposed to or never taught, um, you know, during my uni days. And only really recently with uh, with Mark and Narelle was, was that kind of something that really sort of shone through. So it's something that I've really adapted. And now looking back at movement patterns and, and you know, something as simple um, as a squat, we know that there's a million things that you could pull apart but functionally what's right for one person doesn't necessarily look the same for the next person. And if we jump in there as a coach and try and fix things, sometimes we can make it that much worse. So, yeah, letting the athlete have that ability to, to figure out strategies, work it out on their own. If it looks like a dog's breakfast or if it's really unsafe, then obviously I'm going to jump in there and, you know, give them one or two pointers, um, but certainly don't don't want to overcoach it too early. Mm-hmm. I think you're. I think you're wise beyond your years, Christy. I really do. Like everything <laughs> you're saying right now, I'm like, this is like taking me years to to figure out the same sort of stuff. So it's it's, it's great. Um, I've had some pretty good mentors along the way, so credit to them. I think. There you go. Yeah, it's, it's sometimes it's more important to to be quiet than it is to uh, say anything. Definitely, definitely. Uh, Narelle, um, um, I think it's. Perhaps the way that I teach or I look at movement, um, and by movement I mean speed and agility, um, particularly in the tennis, um, if we're talking about what I'm, I'm currently doing, because I think, you know, we're all very good at analysing a power clean and saying, okay, well, the bar flies way out away from your body, so what are the possible reasons for that? And you have a process by which you go through to then um, correct that movement pattern. And I don't often see um, that we have that same approach to the way we move in speed and agility drills. And that's what I like to focus on. But I like my athletes, and because I'm working in an individual sport like tennis, um, I think it's really important that those athletes learn to become problem solvers. So I spend a lot of time on educating the why Um, and putting it in a context of, okay, just like the position that you are in in your lunge or your squat, we need width of base, we need a head really still, we need a lead with your chin and your chest so your hips um, can then extend, for instance, on the serve. Um, So I think perhaps that's a strength um, that I have. And maybe being able to simplify that information, which can be quite technical, you know, like... You can overanalyze a power clean, right, and come up with 28 different reasons why it doesn't look good. But pick two for your athlete um, because any more than that and their head will explode. So I think with the movement, the ability to simplify and make it sound simple when it's actually quite a complex task um, might be something I'm okay at. Awesome, awesome. So I'm going to dive a little bit deeper on this. So can you give us an example of a tennis player? They've got a, a, they've got a movement that, you feel need some improvement, whether it's like a certain type of mechanical thing, like a cut or a crossover or, or whatever. Um, and, and then how would you go about fixing that? It might be a recent example or, or what well, not fixing it, but improving it. Um, yeah. Um, there's a, an athlete that I worked with previously who um, was a very successful athlete and had a shot that 
um, she believed was a real strength, um, which is called an inside-out forehand. It's where the ball is essentially coming to your backhand side, but you take some big steps to go around it and you'll go across court um, on the shot. And, you know, this particular athlete had had a history of shoulder injuries and all these sorts of things. And after looking at some footage, um, I said to, to them, you're taking very small steps. If your base is very narrow, there's two ways that you can develop racket head speed with tennis. And one is body speed and then there's arm speed. So if your base is narrow and you can't bend your, your legs essentially in a narrow base, then you have to generate all the speed through your arm. And I'm not sure, I'm not saying that it's caused it completely, but that can't be good for these problems that you're having through your shoulder and your upper arm. So when you do this movement, if you take greater steps, your head will stay within your base of support so you don't have to over-rotate on contact with the ball, which means you can actually watch the ball onto the racket. You'll have fast body speed and arm speed so you'll get more power more control um and that's something that um we worked on a lot and um i think made some significant improvements but we can talk about the shapes with the width and the head position that's things or cues that i would use typically in the gym scenario as well for exercises that we're doing so yeah trying to mesh it all in together if you like and then, so, so, so you're talking about these, uh, this like width of base and head position. And then, what, did you have any sort of on court uh, things that you would use? Like, I'm just thinking randomly here, but maybe there's like a, I don't know, you standing there with a band, or or that they have a certain like a, a mini band around their thighs to make sure they're always maintaining a stretch on the band, so they're keeping a, a width of base, something like that. What, 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 would, what did you use in that situation besides just telling the athlete, hey? Why do you stance a little bit and uh, keep your head in one spot, that sort of thing? And it's a real fine line, isn't it? Because what I'm talking about here is tennis technique and I'm not a tennis coach. So I did spend a, quite a bit of time on court with that player and the coach and we might put um, chalk marks on the court to say if this is where you start when you see the ball, your first step needs to be here and working on shoulder and hip rotation because those small steps tended to be a result of no movement through the shoulder or the hips. So you had to move in 20 different segments rather than get your back foot around and then side onto the ball. But we played around with different ideas too. So in my head, with my background in boxing, I thought, okay, if I really wanted to unleash the beast and throw a big hook I would actually follow a similar movement pattern of my right foot would come behind, I'd extend that lunge position to the front and I would really follow through. That's very similar in my mind to what we were trying to achieve. So we actually did a little bit of boxing training to try and work on that. And using the sound, so we practised a lot and the sound of the ball off the racket or or telling me where it's going to land before it does so you've watched the ball onto the racket. All of those things that if you haven't got your feet right, you won't be able to see where the ball has hit the racket. So um, just a thousand different ways of trying to check for understanding of that athlete and 
the end of the day, the proof is in the pudding. They either do it or they don't, right? Mm-hmm, for sure, for sure. No, it makes a lot of sense to me. The chalk marks are just like uh, uh, mini hurdles for sprinting technique or, or something like yep. that, and uh, and the boxing's like a donor skill for the uh, yep. for the actual application. That's that's superb. That really is. Um, Awesome. I want to move now to a professional discussion. And I know you're both both really big in uh, um, providing career pathways for young up-and-coming S&C coaches and, and kind of figuring out what's the, what's the best way of getting a start and, uh, and how do you progress in your career. So wh- where do you actually start in S&C? How, what opportunities should you be looking at? What, what should you go for? What you, should you go, uh, no, I don't want to do that? Uh, yeah, t- tell, tell us more. Um, I think you've got to start with what you're passionate about. I think um, at uni you're almost dictated what you should be learning and then it's a matter of, well, what interests you to then sort of delve a little bit deeper. Um, <laughs> if you're not interested in it, I find it's very difficult to try and force it. So looking at there's so many PD things that are online now, you can pretty much go and do a webinar on just about any aspect of S&C. And especially at the moment, well, you know, everybody's in lockdown and in quarantine and trying to improve their career. Um, but it's finding out, yeah, what are you passionate about and what um, what what can you see the biggest area of growth or development um, for yourself? Obviously, I'm a big advocate for the internship program. Obviously, it paid off pretty well for myself. Um, but I also think that um, knowing when it's appropriate in your career to go and do that and when maybe it's not so um yeah for me I, I had been overseas I'd done um some of my own programming at, at relatively high level I mean India um national team was a, a fairly high level and some of our girls even went to the Rio Olympics but knowing in myself that I still there was something missing I just needed a little bit more um confidence was a big thing um and just having a bit more of an awareness about what the S&C industry was like back in Australia too so for me, after going and, and doing some time at um, Racing Victoria, I still felt like there was something missing and that's what um, the internship was really appealing to me, knowing that there were two really high-level coaches there that I could, you know, hopefully learn a lot from um, and the timing was just perfect for me. So, yeah, I, I was fortunate to have that opportunity. But, um, yeah, I think that it, it's, it's all about the timing as well, timing and, and what you're passionate about. Sure, sure. So I've got a, I've got a follow up question there. So when when is it appropriate for an S and C coach to go and do an internship? And like like yourself, you've been in paid employment and then you've gone back and done an internship. Um, what what, what is the like? When is it appropriate? When is it not? For, according to your sort of framework that you'd think about. Yeah, look, I think it's appropriate when you feel like there's something, when you're open to learning more, or you've acknowledged that there's something missing with your own personal development, and you've you know, maybe you've tried reaching out and doing um, PD courses and you've, you know, spoken to a few different people but you're still not getting the answers that, you know, you just can't solve those problems. Um, for me, that was just a big, yeah, big opening up to that that's what I needed then and there was just a bit of bit of support, um, a bit of time to reflect on my own coaching skills but then also having somebody else that's overseeing what I'm doing to maybe help guide me on the right path. Um Certainly a lot of what I've learned from Narelle and Mark is that you don't want somebody just to give you the answers. You want to learn how to find them find them yourself. And I think, um, yeah, for me, I was open to that at that point in my career. I think if there's 
you know, you've got to do the background research first. I think that if somebody who was coming straight out of university maybe didn't have a lot of experience, they wouldn't know necessarily what to get out of that opportunity. Um, so they could have just kind of, you know, gone through the motions. And, yes, they still would have learned a bunch, but probably not as much as if they had have done a bit of their own kind of programming, running um, running a program and, and then really sort of finding out what it was that they were trying to to get out of that um, that opportunity. Um, but, yeah, you certainly got to be open to, I don't know, being a little bit exposed, being a little bit vulnerable and, and admitting that, you know, there is something that you need help with. Um, but certainly, yeah, if you're too far along in your career and you're not, you know, you're not really willing to accept that you've got some issues or some, some things that you'd like a little bit more knowledge on, then it's probably not the right time. Um, and, yeah, similarly to if you're straight out of university, go and get some time in the game, go get your hands dirty a little bit before you try and, you know, go into that next level of um, your know, higher higher level internship programs. Mm, that's, that's such a good point because it's like you, you've got to go out there and kind of see how the world works and, and figure out what your strengths and weaknesses are before you, if, if you are going to go back and do an internship program, it will make it that much more valuable for you because you, yeah. you've got a bit of experience about you and can really target and, and get what you want out of the program rather than just going through the motions. Yep, exactly. Yep. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, what, what, what about the, does it need to be paid or not paid? Like, the, what, is there a length of time? Does it, is it like a 52-week unpaid internship? Is that too long? Or is it like what, what's the – is it a sliding scale depending on the person that's going in there? I think it's, it's very individual. Um, you know, mine was fortunately paid, which made it a bit easier, but it was also part-time, meaning that I could work outside of, um, outside of my commitment to, to Sunshine Coast Lightning, which – obviously definitely helped, um, especially considering that I was living away from my partner as well, trying to run two households. We definitely needed the, the money coming in. But, um, yeah, I think it's very individual. You know, you don't want to just be going and doing free work for forever. Um, and certainly not if you've been paid previously. You don't want to be going back and doing something for nothing that you've previously been paid for unless you're getting something out of it. So, yeah, for me it's always why are you doing it, what are you getting out of it, and, um yeah, is it is it going to be improving your career in, in some aspect? And for me, um, obviously the internship did tick all of those boxes for me and it um, it certainly paid off. So, yeah, I think just understanding what you're getting out of it before um, before you commit. And obviously just don't do free labour for, for the sake of doing free labour. Um, but, yeah, knowing what your time is worth and what you're willing to invest in, in your own professional development. And I think, too, that each internship um, or, or opportunity um, is not equal um, and that, you know, you can get more from certain people or certain things and being submerged in those things. So if I look back, there weren't many opportunities when I was first starting out in strength and conditioning and I was incredibly lucky to get that scholarship coach position at the AIS um, and, at the time, I think it was about 20 grand before tax for 60-hour weeks um, and, and a couple of years of doing that. And am I angry about that? No, nope, because I would not have got one single job that I've had in what has been a really interesting pathway for me without having done that. And it, that was an investment um, of time, money and effort. So um, I think, you know, look for specific programs that are going to cater for where you have interest or where you would like 
to develop certain skills and um, because there are so many of them now. You know, you don't have to jump immediately at the first one. And the good thing with um, internships and, and scholarship programs and things like that is it's an opportunity for you to make mistakes and we all make them and it's important to make them. I'd say it's only a mistake if you make it two or three times. You know, it's a learning opportunity um, if you do it once, reflect upon what went wrong and change or modify your behaviour or the way that you operate. Um, And you need to do that in a protected environment before you get out in the real world and you're accountable and the consequence of a big mistake in an elite program is massive. so that'd be my advice, I think. Mm-hmm. So I've got a question for you both. Say if I'm, I'm really, I'm, and I'm just thinking about the structure of like uh, sport and the sort of type of institutes versus uh, pro teams or sports teams. But so I'm, I'm really into uh, netball, like Christy, and I'm just out of university. I'm going. Uh, should I go straight to a netball team and and do work experience there because that's where I want to work in, or should I go into somewhere like an institute where I'm going to be potentially working across lot, lots of different sports and there's like a, maybe a melting pot and different people with different experiences and so on. Well, are there any, any thoughts or considerations around that type, uh, that type of consideration? Well, I think the more, it's more about the coaches who you're exposed to. Um, so if you've got to just say, even if it was a high grade netball team and that's where you wanted to go and, you know, it was your passion to one day run in a, you know, an S&C program at SSN and you had an opportunity, but the coach there um, wasn't super invested in it and didn't want, you know, didn't really want an intern there, um, you're probably not going to learn as much because what they're going to give back to you as an intern is probably not exactly what you need then and there, um, opposed to maybe working in an institute where you've got access to lots of different people and lots of different backgrounds. The skills that you're going to learn from that diverse range of um, S&C coaches far outweighs just in my opinion, just what you're going to learn from um, one particular person, you know, it's not to say that they're a bad coach or anything, um, but, yeah, you can certainly learn a lot from, you know, different people, different backgrounds, different experiences as opposed to just focusing on one one particular area. That's my two cents anyway. <laughs> I'd have to agree. And You know, I was fortunate that it was one employer but multiple sports initially and if I think... Um, I talked about the importance of building relationships and communication. If I think back to those early days and some of the sports that I looked after, archery was one of the the programs and men's water polo was another one of the programs. Now, the athletes as well as the coaches, very, very different crews and the way that you approached the delivery of training needed to be different with those guys and so the more exposures to different environments and people I think the better or more well-rounded you might be down the track. Mm -hmm. Yeah 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 no I I resonate with that. Christy you you made a comment about uh, like say the coach doesn't want you there um, are there any, or, or you go to a, a place where it's like maybe a bit iffy, this, this whole internship thing, and it, you're, not, you're not 100% convinced that it's the right place for you? What are, the, are there any telltale signs that you'd be like, this is, this is a good place for it? Because sometimes you might just go in there, have an interview, you know what I mean, and it's, and it's like, okay, do you want to come on board or not? 
it's not like you get to feel someone out for or feel a place out for a month or two months before you actually make a decision to stay there long term for a year. Or are there any telltale signs that you would say this is important to be aware of before you commit to a a, a start or an internship program? Um, look, I think that there's a lot of information available on social medias now, so you can basically go and have a look at their their public profiles and know whether or not they're going to be somebody that you're going to relate to um, well or, or whether they might be, you know, somebody that you're going to have clashes with. So I think do your research first and know whether or not it's the, the fit's right. Um, that's, yeah, probably the best bit of advice because you're right. I mean, you, you don't know a person just from one, you know, one meeting with them. Everybody can be happy for a moment. But if you go back through any kind of social media, you can see whether or not they've got the same same interests, same theories, um, or even if they're different, whether or not they're going to be someone that you can can work with. Mm, I love it. Social, social media is it. For, uh, <laughs> social media stalking for internships. Oh, I love it. It's That's all- it. <laughs> you know, it works the opposite way as well because when you're hiring um, people, you do exactly the same thing, don't you? Mm. Yep. Yeah. Sure, for sure. For sure, it's so true. That's that's, that's awesome. I'm loving that. <laughs> is there, is, now, is there a, we, we've talked about these telltale signs, but is there a type of experience that you might want to do when you first start, or or, or in this sort of professional development? Like, um, is it should it be more practical where you're actually doing things, or should it be where you're just sitting and watching um, an, an experienced coach do their thing? And is, is that also contextual upon like how much experience you actually have? Uh, what are the thoughts there? I think it depends on on where you're at in your career. Like a fresh graduate out of uni, you probably, I I know personally if I was to have a fresh graduate straight out of uni, I'd be very hesitant in giving them, you know, heaps of hands-on experience with with athletes knowing that at the end of the day um, I'd be the one that'd be accountable if they did stuff up. Um, Obviously you'd want to give them some hands-on, but maybe it's in, I don't know, doing one-on-one with them after a, um, a group session and workshopping through what you actually did in that session from, from them observing you and then getting them to coach you back or um, giving you, you know, their feedback or reflection tips on what they noticed of your coaching style, which, um, you know, that's something that I have employed in the past. But obviously if you've had a bit of experience or you've got a, an intern that does have a bit of experience, um, maybe you are willing to let them you know, have a bit more hands-on on with your with your athletes. Um, so, yeah, it's it, it's got to be a bit of both. Obviously, you've got to appreciate what their strengths and weaknesses are first and you're not just going to throw them in the deep end. Um, but, yeah, also letting them have that opportunity to develop as a coach because if they're doing nothing but watching, they're not really learning a whole lot. They're learning how you do things but not how they're necessarily going to improve their craft. Mm-hmm. This makes me think of um, something. Last night I was watching an episode of The Last Dance, um, the story about the Chicago Bulls, and um, I was really fortunate in 1999 that um, Julian Jones knew Luke Longley, who had been playing there and organised a visit for me to go over and and see them. So I missed out on Jordan and Pippen because they'd finished up um, the year before, but I went into the facility and, I just expected everything to be amazing, you know. This is the Bulls. They'll do everything bigger and better. And it was this enormous shed in an industrial park. And we went in there and um, we watched 
um, some people train. It was just very early pre-season. And then I had an opportunity to sit down with Alva Mayle, who was the head of the program there and his assistant at the time, Mike Gatone, um, two of the biggest names in strength and conditioning at the time. And, um, and Al had heard that I was working with the AIS Women's Basketball Program. And he says to me, um, so you're working with basketball? I said, yep. And he said, you might be interested in this. And he went to his file and he got a big um, wad of paper and he threw it on the desk. And so this is 99 and I read the front and it said, US Women's Olympic Team Basketball Program 1996. And it was every drill or program that the entire women's squad had done in the lead up to the 1996 Olympics for 18 months. I said, oh, do you mind if I have a look? And he said, you, you buy your own paper, go down to quick copy and you can take a copy of it. I don't care. I said, really? And he said, girl, they're just exercises and words on a piece of paper. The way you deliver them is what will make the difference between you and me and I'll shit on you every day of the week. <laughs> and I, don't, I think about that often, that, you know, you get caught up in, What's the right set and rep range? Um, and at the end of the day, it's important, but it's not the be-all and end-all. You know, the, the ability to make connections and communicate and get people comfortable being uncomfortable is, is really a key for what we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree. And, and, and for all the listeners, uh, listeners out there that haven't uh, haven't researched Alvin Meal, he'd definitely be on my uh, recommended list of people to uh, find out what you can about the guy and listen to any of his talks or any of his presentations. That's an, that's an awesome story, Nora. It really is. It really is. Um, so we've kind of covered the start or, or maybe the mid. Like you, you do this internship, um, that's the start of it. I want to talk about not just getting in the industry but then staying in the industry. How do you – How do you? what's the career pathway? What's, what's longevity look like? Is it uh, – are you going to stay at one spot um, uh, for, the, for for your whole tenure and, and whole career, or are you going to move around? What, what's what's the best way of best way of doing things? <laughs> I don't know what the best way is. Um, I've I've been fortunate enough to have um, moved around a little bit, and that's purely because either something better has come along or. Um, an opportunity is presented that's maybe taking me down a pathway that's, you know, of interest to me. Um, I certainly don't know if it's it's the right way or whether it's better than than sort of sticking with one employer, but um, sometimes there's just not an opportunity to stay there. I mean, uh, India, they offered, you know, a five-year contract, but after 18 months, like, I couldn't wait to get home. <laughs> so I think it's it's about um, knowing when the time is right to leave. It's not always going to be, be perfect. Um, maybe it is five years, maybe it's 10 years, maybe it's 30 years, I'm not sure. But um, just knowing when, when it's right for you to leave, I think that um, having an appreciation that if you're not enjoying what you're doing or if you're feeling like you need to be somewhere else, then do everybody a favour and, and don't stick around just for, you know, to collect a paycheck. Um, the grass isn't always greener on the other side though. So, you know, in, in hindsight, there were uh, opportunities where I probably would have liked to have stayed a little bit longer, um, particularly with the the Racing Victoria stuff. You know, it was a, a really 
interesting program that we'd started there for about 18 months um, just felt like it was starting to gain traction and, and started to kind of move forward in the direction that we we first envisaged but um, at the same time this amazing opportunity to go and work with Narelle and and Mark up at the Sunshine Coast you know the timing was perfect to leave then and, and go and do that up there um, knowing as well that I did have uh, some good successes that were going to be put in place in in my previous role at, um, at Racing Victoria so comfortable knowing that it would the program would still continue on and, and go off in that same tra- trajectory but also knowing that this is a development um, milestone and an opportunity that I couldn't really pass up. So, um, yeah, I think it's it, it's an individual thing, you know. Um, it's not going to be right for, you know, to say what length of time should you stay. It's, it's like how long is a piece of string, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. It's an interesting question too because um, it, it may imply that there's a lot of choice and I think the reality for our industry and certainly post-COVID-19 where there'll be possibly less jobs and even more competitive, um, that you can't really be too picky, um, particularly if you're just starting out in the industry. Um, go where the jobs are um, would be my advice and I know Christy and I talked about that when um, we were up on the Sunshine Coast, you know, of having just been married and where you want to settle and all those sorts of things, but can you narrow the field down? And, and you know, if you're both working in, in elite sport or, or whatever, that might make it a little bit more difficult. Um, so I think that's important to recognise of where the industry is at too before making those decisions because you don't want to leave something without having something already set up. Um, and if it's for growth, then great. Um, but, yeah, just be, be mindful of that. Mm-hmm. Is, is, there a, is there a similar consideration to what we talked about with the internships in like a, a one pro team versus at an institute that uh, potentially going to across a number of different job sites you might pick up more? Um, versus staying in one one spot, it might be a, it's it's the same thing or or, or themes are the same thing. And, and is there more development if you if you work across uh, different different roles and different jobs? I'd have to agree. I think that um, for every employer or every company that I've worked with, there's been different learning outcomes and different focuses because you know different sports, different athletes. Um, you know, it's not to say that you can't still continue learning while you're within the same program. Um, I think that there's always opportunities to learn, but how much, I guess, that uncomfortable, you know, starting a new place, figuring it all out, building those relationships, um, and then working out how to best um, fit up, you know, fit in with the, the company and the organisation. Um, I think that that's, that's the challenge and that's where I, I've personally found I've had a lot of growth. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure, Narelle, you've spent a little bit more time in, in um, the one spot than I have. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I just usually think more experience is better. Um, but also your end goal needs to be considered as well. So it's a bit like choosing one employer versus multiple. If your heart's set on um, being a strength and conditioning in the AFL, 
well, we know our industry is about networks and connections. So the earlier you can start to make a network and have connections within that particular sport, hopefully the faster you get an opportunity in that. Um, by the same token, I think while you pursue that, it is important to, in, in my case, my best friend at uni was a speed water skier. Now that is a mental sport. And we did some really weird stuff where I I reflect back now and I think, well, it was good luck rather than good management that she didn't completely fall apart. But there was one of those opportunities where I probably made some mistakes, but I learned a lot. Um, and it gave me something to discuss with colleagues when I went into other environments when they said, you know, well, um, we're going to look at X, Y and Z exercises. Have you had experience coaching them? And you can say yes with this particular athlete and whatever. So you've actually got things to draw upon in a conversation and I think that's where it grows. When that it's not a conversation, if you haven't had any experience, it's just storytelling from somebody telling you how it is. You might as well read a book. So it's important to be getting some experience but also working on the direction that you would like to ultimately end up in your career. Mm, mm, definitely, definitely. N next, next thing, next thing. Is it not just across, um, say, different jobs, but is it also across potentially different cultures? Like, say, Christy, you've been in uh, India, and I, I'd mm -hmm. say dealing with, dealing with uh, say, Indians and coaching Indians it might be a fair bit different from uh, Australians uh, and, and the sort of structures they have around that. Is that something that you'd recommend to other coaches to, to go out and do to, to, to give you a, a better sense of how to coach when you come back to your home country or your home environment? Yeah, definitely. I think um, not just different cultures, but different demographics. Like within Australia, you know, there's there's youth development, there's um, senior, there's elite, um, there's disability, you've got males versus females. I think that there's so much, um, there's so many different, you know, population groups that you can potentially work with and they each give you something more to work on or, or develop you in a different way. Um and will obviously, you know, change maybe the way that you deliver a message to those particular athletes. Certainly India was a massive um, cultural change. Um, you know, it's it's not like Australia where, um, you know, the athletes just really didn't have a lot of say. It was a lot of dictating down from lots of the senior coaches, which is something that we weren't really familiar with that was, um, you know, they were basically told this is when you go to sleep, this is when you eat, this is what you have to do. And these girls were just so regimented that they didn't even know what it was like to have an opinion. Um, and and for that, you know, you, you, you've got to ask the question, well, why are you here? If you're just being told that you have to be here because this is the sport that you're good at, where's the passion in that? So that was something that um, that we really, or that I really learned from India was, you know, being able to educate people to have an opinion and to ask the questions, whereas... If I try to implement that here in Australia, a lot of the athletes don't have those same values or don't have those um, morals, I guess, instilled in them that they have to be subservient. Um, you know, they, they do have opinions and sometimes it's reining those opinions back in that you don't have to have an opinion on absolutely everything. Sometimes you just need to, you know, stop talking and listen for a little bit um, or work collaboratively, which 
you know, very, very different. Um, males versus females, I think, too, can be can be quite different. Um, the way that we coach male athletes compared to female athletes, it's you, you just can't have the same tone, the same mannerisms. We we we're different population groups, but I know that even within the one netball group um, down at Adelaide, you know, the way that I spoke to one athlete, I certainly couldn't speak the same way to the you know the next one coming along. So. Um, yeah, it's more, I think, about communication styles and understanding how your message is being perceived and then also having that ability to listen but to also understand what that athlete's kind of saying to you. So, yeah, cultures, um, different demographics, age groups, genders, you name it, I think that you can learn something from each one of those experiences. Mm, mm, that's awesome. That's awesome. Raoul. I'm, I'm going to go back to your uh, social media stalking of prospective employees, yes. and uh, I, I'm going to ask you. So, when you're when you're looking to hire someone, yeah, is it? Uh, and, and we're talking about these these different places people might have worked, different positions or different cultures or different different demographics. Is that appealing for you? Is it uh, absolutely? And certainly, when I came back to Australia to work in tennis and and manage the national network. Many of the tennis coaches were ex-tennis players Um, and so they had very strong beliefs in doing what they had done and that they wanted people that spoke the same language as them as S&C people. So get this person, they're really experienced in tennis. But I often thought those people were very one-dimensional and that being able to bring something else to the table um, could be very advantageous. So a classic example, I think, is I think there are a lot of similarities between cricket and tennis, and that may not be obvious, but the schedules, the touring schedules, the countries they're going to, um, the volume of work that they might do with the different formats and all those sorts of things. So I think there is... Um, things that somebody with a cricket background can bring to tennis that can be very valuable in trying to pull a program together in a completely dysfunctional sport. So um, I don't think that I'd potentially or definitively say I would prefer the multi-sport over the one sport, Um, but... I would definitely not rule out multi-sport or someone that didn't have any experience in a particular sport if they had many experiences in, in other sports. Mm-hmm. And is there, is there anything else you, you really look for when you're uh, employing staff? Um, for me, I just think it's humility and understanding of their own strengths and weaknesses. Um, and as Christy mentioned um, a little bit earlier, the ability to listen because I think a real strength of strength and conditioning coaches or the good ones is they hear the words that aren't said Um, and whether that means there's something going on in their private life or on the field or on the court that is affecting the way that they're functioning and can train they're very important things that can have big influence on the program. So you need to be aware and you need to not just listen but hear what is happening within that athlete's environment. So um, how do you tell that at an interview? 
That's not always easy, but that's something that I would definitely look for um, and perhaps give a problem for somebody to solve that might have elements in that um, at an interview. I'm just sorry. I'm just thinking of a really... I'm like, you walk into an interview and you're like, you put out a vibe that your your dog of 10 years has just passed away or something like that. And then you're waiting for, to see if they'd say anything. Are you okay? Or I don't know. But thoughts rang to mind. It's a real random thought. I'm sorry. Um, Christy, is there, is there anything, uh, anything uh, you would add to that? Um, I think Narelle's probably hit it straight on the head there is that we're, as an S&C coach, I think we're always willing to give advice, but yeah, you're right. We just don't take the time to really listen and understand what, what it is that they're trying to achieve at the end of the day. Um, you know, whether it's the athlete that you're communicating with or the coach, um, we're there to support that program. Um, while we can have our own understandings of opinions and beliefs and, um, what we can educate at the end of the day if we're not hitting the nail between what the athlete and what the coaching staff want um, then we're probably just going to be yeah failing miserably <laughs> mm-hmm. Joseph I know that you're you're keen to ask why what people's why is and I think delving into that in an interview process can help you determine whether their why fits the culture of your environment um, because that's a really important match, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Too, too often in tennis, I interviewed people and you could see that they were up for the sexy stuff. Yeah, I want to travel the world. I want to sit in the player's box and get my head on the TV at Wimbledon. Well, do you know what? You're going to be at the courts from 6am to midnight every day for three months. You're going to be having very small opportunities to make physical differences. You're not going to have the resource that a sexy um, professional club might have. Are you sure that this is what you want, not what you think it is? Um, And that's an important one to get right. So so then my next question is, and and I think this would be a really nice wrap-up, how do you actually tease that out when when you're... uh, trying to find the right staff member. How, what do you use to, to see if their why aligns with yours? Um, I think in um, questions around um, what has been their most satisfying uh, experiences as a strength and conditioning coach to date, what are their frustrations when they don't get opportunity, you know, when the coach says um, you can have two times a week doing this and you actually think you need four times a week to make a meaningful difference? How do you deal with that frustration? Do you try and convince the coach to change things or do you accept that there are some things that can't change and how might you add incidental work in? I think you tease it through that way of, of how they cope when things aren't as they might ideally perceive they should be in that role. So interesting, so interesting. It's been it's been awesome speaking to you both. Um, really has. I've uh, I've been super impressed. I want to I want to finish up this uh, this call just with a, a couple of quick fire questions for you both. Uh, these can be you can elaborate if you want. You can give me a one word answer, um, uh, but it's up to you. Uh, the, the first one, and and we'll go at uh, Christy first. What, what are you most excited about developing or learning in your next eighteen months? 
Um, most excited about learning, um, I guess, a little bit more about the business side of S&C, uh, something that I haven't really been exposed to much um, in my previous roles, you know, finances and everything. Money just goes into your bank account and, you know, it's happy days, whereas um, in my, my new role, I'll um, hopefully be looking at establishing a bit of a business um, myself, whereas going into private practice. So obviously all of those things that I've learnt um, as an S&C coach in communication, now I have to apply it in the business setting as well where it's actually talking about money and, and you know, referral systems and, and trying to drum up business. Um, so, yeah, something I'm super excited to learn a lot more about because it's something that I'm totally not comfortable comfortable or confident in at all. Um, but I think that it's, it's important and, yeah, it should help that next stage of my career um, progress. Yeah, awesome, awesome, awesome. Narelle? Um, I think exploring more leadership and management um, type things. Um, obviously, with the ASCA Women's Advisory Committee, we've had a program called MentorLink um, that commenced in January, matching young female strength and conditioning coaches with some of the best people in the country. And, um, you know, we get together as mentors every now and then and, it just makes me feel grossly inadequate and uh, in a good way, um, which makes you want to kind of develop skills um, in those areas. And and I also think that as a mum, it's very difficult for me to perform traditional strength and conditioning roles that might start at 6am in the morning and finish late at night. Um, I can't do that anymore. So I need to constantly evolve and learn new things to add to my repertoire. So that's hopefully something that might uh, add another string to my bow and um, make me more employable. Yeah, cool, 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 cool. Definitely, definitely considerations uh, that that you're sort of always getting a paycheck or or, or always being in a in a non-user pay environment is uh, is just, again it might be a good thing for people. For uh, like prospective employment, if you do step out into a user pay environment where your service uh, quality will impact whether a person comes back the next day and you and you're able to put bread on the table, um, interesting. Uh, books on the bookshelf. Any recommendations? <laughs> I've got a great one that I'm reading at the moment, Connie, uh, called Morning Miracle. Um, it's got nothing to do with S and C. It's more about just being. Um, you know, making the most of your time. And I think at the moment with the COVID-19, it's quite easy to fall into a bit of a trap where you lose a bit of that routine and a little bit of the structure. And it might be easy just to stay in bed, you know, an extra half an hour because you don't have to be at work at a certain time. Um, so for me, that's a, you know, a nice book to read that makes you feel good. But I think the ones that I always go back to, and I'm just looking at them now, there's a pile about this thing, but I think the biggest ones are probably um, high performance training for sport, which is, like my bible i always refer back to it um it's something that gives me a lot of confidence as well and and i think it it actually asks a lot of questions as well you know within your own programming and structure of different things um it's important to sort of have the the foundations there but then to ask the questions about well how can you do it differently or how can it be interpreted differently or how does this mold fit within the current playing group that i've got so and they're the two big kickers for me. And the last one, um, just a nice fluffy one to read on the plane. It's not too too deep in, in scientific stuff. There's uh, Every Day is Game Day, which um, I found that a very easy read and, and quite enjoyable. And, and a lot of the time, um, if you do need a bit of extra motivation, you can always get it from that book too. 
So they're my three. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Is that, is that a Mark Verstegen book, Every Day is Game Day, right? Yeah. 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 Awesome. Awesome. Uh, Narelle, what about yourself? There's two books by Simon Sinek that I've got on my bedside table at the moment. Um, the first one is Start With Why and the second one is Leaders Eat Last. Um, so I'm keen to have a look at those. There's TED Talks for people who aren't so keen to uh, do the reading and, and would like to watch it uh, as a video clip. Um, the other one that I'm keen to pick up and I believe it's released tomorrow is Nick Winkleman's new book um, around the language of coaching. I think, um, you know, that's something that I've been interested in and given the situation that we're in at the moment and there's remote coaching um, going on, I think, um, you know, to be sure that the the words that you use, the language that you use is optimising the ability of that client to understand the message that you're trying to get across i think that would be a, a good investment of time to uh to have a look at that one mm, awesome awesome now look the uh obviously nick, nick winkerman's uh um he's been on the podcast he's awesome uh and, and some of the books you recommended uh david joyce is high performance training for sport and yeah great books and i'm, I'm sure all the listeners will uh, love those recommendations Hey, how do we, how do we get, uh, before we finish up, how do we get more information from you two? Like, is there, you're on Twitter, you're on Instagram, are you, uh, um, our prospective employer is going to be social media stalking you. What, what, what's, uh, what, what's happening there? I'm very quiet on social media. Um, I'm not sure whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but personally I just don't like to put a lot of the, the stuff that I'm doing with the athletes up on social media and um, and it's more around the privacy issues, knowing what they're comfortable with. Um, you can go along uh, and have a look at some of the training stuff that we have been doing off the official website from the Thunderbirds. That's um, probably the last lot of programming that I've done. You can go back historically and look through that. Um, but, yeah, otherwise I'm, I'm pretty quiet on the social media fronts. I, I generally follow a lot of different people on Twitter and get a lot of resources from there but um, probably don't put enough of my own stuff out there. So looking to change that when I'm back in the, uh, the university and a lot of academia again, so watch this space. All right, so we're going to watch the space. What, what's the Twitter handle we, we've got to watch for? It's Christy underscore Sheridan, nice and simple. Okay, cool, cool, cool. And Narelle? And I'm very similar to Christy. I like to stalk people on, on Twitter and not contribute very highly myself. Um, I'm at Narelle's site. Narelle doesn't look like a bad person. Thanks, Joseph. I appreciate that. Um, so, yeah, that's at Narelle's site. But also um, assuming that the ASEA conference goes ahead this year, if it hasn't already, um, by the time this is up and running, Christy and I will be at the conference this year. So looking forward to catching up with many of you. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Well, I'll tell you what, girls, it was, it was an absolute pleasure having you on. I, um, it, was, it was absolute gold. I, I really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, thank, thank you so much. Thanks for oh, having thank us. Appreciate it. Okay, before we go, we've got to give Val Performance another round of gratitude. Great support of the ASCA in this podcast. Like I said at the beginning of the episode, if you're interested in any of their products, which you should be, by the way, please check them out, valperformance.com. They're on social media, Twitter, Instagram, you name it. Shoot them an email, info at valperformance.com if you can't get through to them. That way, 
as another option as well. So that wraps us up. Hope everyone got a lot out of this chat uh, with Narell and Christy. I really enjoyed it. And until our next episode, I'm Joseph Coyne, and this is the ACA Podcast.